Back, folks, with another exciting episode of Radio vs. the Martians. I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this month, we are going to get into the work, the mind, and dare I say, the soul <laughs> of polarizing genius, not genius filmmaker, M. Night Shyamalan, the man behind Sixth Sense and The Happening. And other things, of course. Oh, yes. <laughs> There's a lot of and other things in this topic. <laughs> but before we get started, we want to give a special thank you out to all the listeners who've gone to iTunes. Folks, you know, the best thing you can do to help us out is leave a rating and review on iTunes and Stitcher. Some great folks have done this in just the last month over on iTunes, and this is the number one thing you can do if you like what we do on this show, to increase our visibility, increase our prominence, and get this show into more ears. And after you're done rating and reviewing, check out our website, RadioVersusTheMartians.com, for this month's Radio versus the Mailbag question, and I'm proud to be the author of this one. The question is, what do you feel is the greatest and most iconic television or film theme song? A lot of people have a tendency to think about movies and television as a strictly visual medium, hmm. and it'd be easy to forget that music plays a huge role in how we process images and experiences that come to us through that screen. Like, would we think quite the same way about Jaws without duh <laughs> Would we see Darth Vader as the monstrous, scary, unstoppable evil force if he didn't have the Imperial March behind him? Would we hate Star Trek Enterprise as much without that weird Rod Stewart-inspired theme song? I don't think we would. <laughs> so please go to our website, RadioVersusTheMartians.com. Let us know, what do you think is the most iconic film score, the most iconic TV score? Because music, it's a big deal, man. <laughs> and getting back to Shyamalan, it's time for recommendations, where we say, hey, I might be interested in this thing, and I want to know a little bit more about this filmmaker, this Shyamalan guy. What do you recommend this month, Casey? I think I exhausted my movie-watching muscle for this. You'll see as it comes out in, in the discussion to follow. I think we, I exhausted basically my patience for it. However, if you're wanting to view M. Night Shyamalan on the cusp between genius filmmaker to tired, cliched film hack, Lady in the Water for me is right there on the middle. And I won't do any spoiling. There's no spoiling that needs to be necessary. It's just that there are two characters, and you'll know what I'm talking about once you watch them, that are added in that are the type of unnecessary filmmaker ego stroke indulgence. And let's just also put it out there that one of them involves the director cameo that are so absurd that it's utterly transparent about what he's trying to do and it also sort of makes everyone give a collective sigh while watching it so if you want to sort of view him where he's not quite at the bottom he's just sort of on the fulcrum i believe today's magic word is masturbatory <laughs> so for my recommendation i'm going to do something a little different this actually isn't an m night Shyamalan movie hmm. But this is a sort of movie that if M. Night Shyamalan had made it, it could pull him out of the rut that we often see him in now. Mm. And that is The Mist, directed by oh, Frank Darabont. Right. This is a movie that was made in 2007 based on a Stephen King short story. Mm -hmm. I think it's easily one of the best horror movies of the past 10 years. Scratch that. It's one of the best movies of the past 10 years. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> this is exactly the sort of movie that M. Night Shyamalan should be making, and it's the sort of movie that The Happening should have been. Mm. 
It's essentially an intimate story. It's very people-focused. And until the end, most of the special effects are really kind of kept out of view or just real quick cuts. Hmm. It's got lots of interesting idiosyncratic characters. It's about a group of neighbors in a small New England town barricading themselves in a grocery store as this mysterious mist sweeps over their town, shutting off the radio, shutting off contact from the outside world, and... There's monsters swirling around inside of it. Hmm. It's kind of an update in many ways of the Night of the Living Dead, and it has an ending that feels like getting repeatedly kicked in the stomach, (laughs) and I fucking love it. So before we get started, one of the things that M. Night Shyamalan is famous for are twist endings, and we are going to spoil the shit out of all of them. So viewer discretion is advised. Don't be a big baby about spoilers, you asshole. Sorry, leave us a good review. And on that note, we will catch you on the other side. Let's go to the panel. A few years ago, I found myself sitting in a crowded movie theater. I was watching a preview for an upcoming film, a thriller about people trapped in an elevator. And like with many other well-made trailers, I found myself becoming engaged in the plot, the acting, and its atmosphere. I could feel in the seats around me that other patrons were feeling the same way. The same pregnant silence that only comes when an audience is pulled into the worlds playing across the large screens in darkened, air-conditioned rooms. And in a moment, the words, From the mind of M. Night Shyamalan, were writ large across the screen, and I could instantly feel both my lungs and my interest in seeing this movie deflating. And again, I wasn't alone. I could hear the disappointed exhalation of breath and even a few chuckles in the derision of the people around me. And a new question entered my mind. How the hell did this happen? It wasn't that long ago that the name M. Night Shyamalan was a license to print money in Hollywood and a guarantee that a movie would not only be a giant at the box office, but a critical hit as well. In August of 1999, M. Night Shyamalan was a 29-year-old wunderkind whose blockbuster film, The Sixth Sense, made nearly $700 million at the box office worldwide and was nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Picture. The Sixth Sense was a story of a child psychologist played by Bruce Willis who works to help a troubled young boy named Cole with the power to communicate with the dead. Most notable with the movie's reception with critics was the film's now notorious twist ending and the performance of a young Haley Joel Osment as Cole, a role that won him a nomination for Best Supporting Actor at only 11 years old. Of his performance, Carrie Rickey, writing for the Philadelphia Inquirer, said, So transparent is Osmond as an actor and so rare that the pain on his face stabs you in the heart. His 2000 follow-up, Unbreakable, starring Willis again and Samuel L. Jackson, was a risky reimagining of the superhero genre, and while not the box office hit that The Sixth Sense was, it was a financially successful film with generally positive reviews from critics. And like The Sixth Sense before it, Unbreakable had a twist ending that was quickly becoming Shyamalan's trademark. And perhaps most importantly, this was the first film where the young filmmaker was given the final cut privilege by the studio, given the 30-year-old last word on the edit of films that would be released to theaters. This was an almost unprecedented license, normally reserved for only the most established and bankable directors like Steven Spielberg, Woody Allen, Stanley Kubrick, and Francis Ford Coppola. But it didn't last. While his 2002 Mel Gibson alien invasion film, Symes, continued to perform well with both audiences and critics, the response to his work was noticeably cooling. Dissenting voices became only louder in 2004 with The Village, which critics referred to as mediocre lunacy and an amateur work given the superficial veneer of professionalism. 
Shyamalan himself was called overrated. As time went on, his continuing efforts like Lady in the Water were panned more and more by critics and the box office returns were drying up. The bottom finally fell out with 2008's The Happening, an environmental disaster movie that personally made me give up as an M. Night Shyamalan fan. The Happening, according to critic Richard Roper, quote, almost dares you to roll your eyes or laugh at certain scenes that are supposed to be deadly serious. By 2013, Shyamalan's Hollywood stock had plummeted so far that the studio even declined to feature his name as director in the trailer for the Will Smith science fiction film After Earth. Which brings me back to my original question, sitting in that movie theater. How the hell did this happen? How did this man that Newsweek magazine put on their cover as the next Spielberg become a laughingstock for producers and film geeks and former diehard fans like myself? I can think of no filmmaker, save perhaps Orson Welles, who has risen so quickly only to fall so fast and so hard. And these are the questions we're asking today as Radio vs. the Martians tackles the rise and fall of a promising writer-director, M. Night Shyamalan. Let's go to the panel. Returning to the show this month is our good friend, artist, aspiring screenwriter, and gleeful misanthrope, Rosalind Townsend. Welcome back, Rosalind. Hi, I'm gleeful misanthrope. That's new. Thanks. And back to the show after a long absence, she's an educator, Doctor Who fangirl, and co-host of Ask an Atheist radio show, Rebecca Friedman. Hi, Mike. And finally, the hot dog man to my Mark <laughs> Wahlberg, <laughs> Casey Doran. How are you doing, Casey? Thanks, Mike. You couldn't, I couldn't have had a better intro right there. I want to get started, and I know it can be extremely tempted to focus on the fact that M. Night Shyamalan is really the butt of a lot of jokes out there. I want to hop in the DeLorean and go back to 1999 for a moment, when this was the hottest young filmmaker around, and people were comparing him to Spielberg and Hitchcock. Becky, I want to start with you. Do you remember the first time you remember seeing or experiencing the work of M. Night Shyamalan? Yes, I do. It was with The Sixth Sense. I had been familiar with The Usual Suspects, which is another film that is not by M. Night Shyamalan, but really widely sort of lauded for having a, a twist ending. You have to watch this movie. You have to, you have to, you have to. I'm not going to give it away. And I was hearing the same kinds of things about The Sixth Sense. I didn't see it in the theater, but we rented it from the video store. I believe it may have been Blockbuster at the time. And I remember watching it with my dad, with my brothers. My one brother had seen it in the theater. At some point, my dad and I had to kick my brother out of the room because he kept going, oh, oh, no. Okay, watch that. Okay, notice that. And, and we just said, get out of here. I'm not generally one for enjoying spooky movies. I don't like horror. I don't necessarily like thriller. It's not my favorite kind of thing. But it was incredibly compelling. It was really compelling. I was very, very impressed with the acting of this little boy. And like you said in your intro, Mike, you had, you know, this pain that was just so transparent with this little boy, with Haley Jawsman, that just sort of you open yourself to without really seeing everything else. So the feelings and the emotion were incredibly transparent. But to me, at least, seeing this for the first time as a high schooler, the plot was not transparent. The twist was not transparent. I did notice a few of the things like, the, you know, you see some of the colors, the use of color. You see this doorknob. All right. There's something a little bit, you know, everything looks sort of blue lens. There's something going on here. I'm not sure what it is. But I remember being highly satisfied with the twist in the end, having that experience and that feeling of, all right, I got to go rewatch it right now three times. Let me pick up all the things that I saw. Yeah, I think that's a good part of a movie where the twist is accomplished well, that you were engaged before you realized there was going to be a twist, that there was a sense that the story, even without the twist, is compelling and engrossing. But I want to get back to that point, too, that we all had a point where we did not know who M. Night Shyamalan was. When his name showed up in a trailer, we had no idea what we were in for. Rosalind, I want to take you back to 1999. Do you remember the hype surrounding Sixth Sense? 
And did you see it back then? I did not see it back then. I do remember the hype surrounding it, and I remember seeing it more in the guise of parody. So you would be watching a sketch comedy, and you'd see someone saying, I see dead people, and you go, okay, well, that was a relic and a catchphrase that people would use back then because it was related to the movie. <laughs> the way I actually figured out what The Sixth Sense was and heard anything about the storyline, I knew about the plot twist and all that kind of stuff, but it was... <laughs> this is really depressing. I was high as a kite, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> I had a dental procedure that needed to be done. I needed to be on heavy, heavy, heavy painkillers. And it was 1999, 2000, so I was probably like 17, 16. And I was going into the dentist office with my parents in tow, probably swaying, looking like a bit of a stoner. And I was sitting in the waiting room and I found a children's adaptation of The Sixth Sense as a novel in the waiting room. That's oh. a strange thing. <laughs> so it was like a flesh Kincaid level of about like a third grade kind of thing. <laughs> and I'm like sitting through it Whoa. waiting to be put under heavy sedation. And I'm going, yeah, this is a pretty good twist ending. <laughs> it seems like an incredibly weird thing to have novelized for young adults sort yeah. of fifth grade reading level. Frankly, I, because I saw the film recently, it seems a lot more sanitized than people presented it to me. But even when I was reading it, it, it was even more sanitized down than the movie was. So, I mean, it was presentable. But I just remember this kind of haze of a storyline regarding a dead guy and a young boy and that there's a twist ending and that, oh, that's very sad. And now I need to go get my tooth removed. <laughs> <laughs> a terrible association. But I think that's a big, big part of this is that this was such a blockbuster that they would even make a young adult novelization of this movie in the first place. Because normally you only get that with characters that have this universal recognition. Like even if you have a Superman movie where he's raining death on people and snaps a dude's neck, you're still going to have kid friendly stuff that gets put out sure. with a Superman Man of Steel logo on it. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen for thrillers. You don't have, like, the devil's advocate young junior novelization. <laughs> I, I kind of want, like, the Golden Book adaptation of The Birds by Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. That would be great. Right. But it really shows how deeply ingrained this got in pop culture. Like you mentioned the fact that every sketch comedy show did the I See Dead People. Oh, yeah. You heard it everywhere right. for about two years. There was no escaping it. And how many goddamn parody things. Thank God memes and the internet did not exist then. Because we would have seen icy, dumb people everywhere. We still can't get away from it now. Yes. But was that a Freudian slip? You just said icy, dumb people. Yeah, that's the parody no, that we would see forever. Oh, there were oh, bumper oh, stickers oh. and stuff with that, I, I remember. See. They I basically see. take No, the I thought you were just having a like a really subconscious like snap there at people who like to quote stupid movie lines. Ah. A little column A, a little column B. <laughs> but I think a lot of it was they would actually take the entire Haley Joel Osment monologue about, hey, walk around. They don't know that they're dumb. That whole thing and turning it into something where they're making fun of all the people around them mm. while just repeating things that were put to them. Yes. And it's the beautiful little irony of memes in that way. However, the fact that this was such a cultural juggernaut before the Internet was even a thing right. really just gets to the heart of where it was. So when this bomb exploded of M. Night Shyamalan all over theaters everywhere... Casey, where were you? And did you see it in theaters? Yeah, I did. I was in film school. So I can't tell you why I was aware that it was coming out. But it certainly when you're in film school, that's a buzz of all of your social conversations. So me and my now wife saw the movie. I will say with all pride and without any embarrassment at all, that it's fantastic to watch horror movies with women because they are so much more amorous after because their blood flow is up. <laughs> She's not going to listen to this episode, so it's totally fine. <laughs> I'd actually heard a thing recently that one of the best times in terms of holidays and you're looking to get late is not Valentine's Day. It's Halloween because everyone's oh, yeah. like frightened and clinging to each other kind yeah. of thing. 
No, but anyone who's listened to enough of episodes knows that I'm not like a horror movie guy. And certainly, this is kind of a movie that kind of crossed over a lot of different genres. The ending wasn't spoiled for me, too, and I was genuinely impressed. And I fairly was impressed all the way through Signs, I think, which is where I dropped off. But still, I do remember being like, yeah, this guy's amazing. We need to keep our eyes on him and watch what he does next. And definitely that really potent feeling like you get of, and it's amazing when a filmmaker can do this, when you say, holy shit, I need to watch it again. Cameron and I said that to each other, like, that's a very powerful thing you can achieve as a filmmaker. It doesn't happen very often, so it's really something special. That's I remember it being very special. I think this is a movie that can survive without the twist, too. I think that it does something very interesting, which is it's a horror movie that's not rated R, and in moments can be actually palpably scary. Mm -hmm. Even though it's not overtly gory, it doesn't use a lot of jump scares, it doesn't have moments with graphic violence, and when you go back into it the second time, it's not about having horror thrown in your face, it's about this slow, ambient dread. Mm -hmm. Let's get to the twist, because this movie is almost 20 years old at this point. Right. So I think it's important that we can just spoil the shit out of it for everyone else. (laughs) A friend of mine actually had it spoiled for him in a movie review in the newspaper, which is really shitty. What? (laughs) Oh. Anyways, the revelation that we learn at the end of this movie is that Bruce Willis, the child psychologist who's been following this child around who sees ghosts, is a ghost himself. I thought you were going to go, he's a superhero. (laughs) No, wait. Whoa. (laughs) It's actually a really good movie. And it's the thing that's wonderful about it is that it plays into this idea of there's all these little hints in the movie. And it's all part of, I need to watch that again. Because the character himself is shot early in the movie. You only see him alive, really, in the first five minutes of the film. Sure. And you notice that whenever as a ghost, which is most of the movie, and doesn't know that he's a ghost, he's upset. He always has his arm on his side where he was shot. Little things like that. Like you mentioned, Becky, the use of red. The thing I love about this movie, The Sixth Sense, is that it has these little rules for how ghosts act, but it never sits you down and reads those rules to you. It lets Mm. you figure them out visually, which I think Mm -hmm. is one of the real strengths of this movie. What I thought was a real strength, actually, was that you have Bruce Willis. He's sort of this kindly character, and he's definitely a character of authority. For someone who is an adult who's watching the film, you're in the shoes of the adult. And to find out that you, as an adult, may not know everything about your world. There may be something revealed to you that is very startling and turns your whole perspective upside down, I think is powerful. For a child, it's incredibly powerful to think there's something that I am in the know on that a grown-up doesn't know. And I'm trying to help this grown-up understand and see from my perspective. And he wants to help me, but he just doesn't get it until he finally does. And for both young viewers and older adult viewers, I think that that's really wildly effective. Wouldn't you say that that's brought in pretty early on in the story, though? Because, I mean, the actual scene where Bruce Willis's character gets shot is a guy going, you couldn't help me. Right away, you go, okay, this character is not infallible. He's lauded for his work but there's still a lot of problems and I think that that pervades that perpetuate that is perpetuated throughout the film and until it really finally comes to that resolution so yeah I would say that it's brought in early but that's part of what makes it compelling the other neat thing is that it gives you the sense that what's happening to this child Cole Haley Joel Osment is what happened to this person that he failed so in a sense as a ghost he's getting a second chance to overcome something that got him in life and What he learns by dealing with Cole is that he's helping him when his ability is to talk to dead people is that these people are seeking him out because this is the only person in their world who will acknowledge their existence. And they have this unfinished business. And the beautiful twist of it is that Bruce Willis doesn't realize that he's one of those people that's drawn to him to deal with unfinished business. And in this case, it's helping a child. 
even though he goes to him and says, I think that maybe if I help you, I'm helping this other kid. He's setting it up, but he's not setting it up in the way that he realizes the movie is. And I really kind of like that twist that the things that give you hints throughout the movie are remarkably subtle. It's not something that horror movies do that much anymore. I think we saw it a lot with Hitchcock. That Hitchcock could have these slow-burning, ambient senses of, like I said, dread. That you don't know what's in that other room. You don't know what Cole is seeing for, like, the first 45 minutes of the movie. You don't actually see the ghosts. You just see him reacting to it, or you come into the room and all the doors on the cabinets are open. Right. And he's just sitting there. And again, when he leaves the room and you see the imprints of his hands slowly disappear and you realize how scared he was, it's little visual ticks like that. Along with this kid who had incredible acting. Shyamalan is and remains a very capable visual storyteller. Certainly in that movie, you hit the nail on the head, Mike. There's this great book called Truffaut on Hitchcock, and it's about the French film director Truffaut and sort of deconstructing what makes Hitchcock movies Hitchcock movies, right? Because he was the guy who did thrillers and suspense, and he sort of made the genre. And the ticking Hitchcock's bomb is this scenario about the way you stage a drama like a suspense. And it's talking about if there are two guys at a table and there's a bomb underneath it, and then they're talking and then it blows up. The audience will say, oh, what the heck went on here? But if you show that there's a timer on the bomb that says there's 15 minutes and they're having this conversation, the audience is allowed to sort of build up this anxiety and this tension and this fear that's happening while the characters aren't realizing it. And somehow using that space of just giving the audience just enough hint about what's going on and then allowing just the shot or the scene to play itself out can do more than so many smash cuts or jump scares could ever actually do. And he does that amazingly in this movie and the first few movies for sure. The thing that I think is so weird about The Sixth Sense is that it was a massive blockbuster. In 1999, it came in second place at the box office only to Star Wars Episode One. Right. Wow. That is a big deal because that was when Star Wars fandom was probably at its absolute apex. So how are these movies blockbusters? That's the part I don't understand is that we have more and more an audience that its visual palette and its tastes have been geared towards movies that move in a clip big action that everything that's happening on screen is just like bam 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 something Mm. is either blowing up or someone's telling a joke or somebody's reacting to an explosion or someone's learning this big revelation but there's always a sense of something's always got to be moving Mm -hmm. but these are movies that are kind of slow that build so much on this deliberate pacing and having this slow atmospheric I don't know. It's like you're being marinated in the feel of the movie rather than having these constant plot beats hitting you over and over again. So that's what I want to understand here is why do you think these movies were big hits? I think that for the reason that you said, there was a certain generation of film going audiences that understood thrillers done in a certain particular way. And then, I mean, I guess Silence of the Lambs would be similar to that. But there was a whole generation of moviegoers that had simply just never seen a really very well-constructed, evenly paced thriller movie before. And he was the first guy to do it in earnest for years. So I guess maybe that we'd just forgotten what they were like, what good thrillers were like. I might argue that the reason that it was as successful as it ended up being was, A, people kind of assume that this is M. Night Shyamalan's first film. It was not. Right. And I think the genre kind of serendipitously played into his mode of storytelling as a director and a writer. Because you're looking at something that is a suspense, that's a thriller, the way he paced his script and the way he paced the direction, I think, lended to it a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think that might have something to do with why the other films instantly, like, Unbreakable has more flaws than The Sixth Sense, people argue. And you can see that grade start to break down 
I think rather quickly. And I think it has to do with the fact that it was supposed to be suspenseful and I think it lent to a storytelling, basically. Hmm. Anytime you have a movie where at the end people want to watch it again, they say, I have to watch it again so I can pick up all the stuff that I didn't realize the first time, you're going to have them buying another movie ticket. Blockbuster success. There's no reason to go see Titanic again. You know what happens. You saw the love story. Boom. Okay. Over with. But this one, you see it, you're compelled, you're brought in through the entire movie, and then at the end, you're there saying, I have to rewatch it. Yeah, multiple ticket sales, certainly. You probably lent a lot of the box office if most people saw it once. And to be fair, you guys all saw it in a very different environment than I did. I watched it for this. (laughs) Wow. Really? I watched it at midnight, and it was like the last of his films that I saw. So there's a lot to be said for coming at something completely fresh and never hearing of the director before. Yeah. So you had the exact opposite context that we did. Yeah, I did. So I didn't see anything like The Happening or Lady in the Water, the stuff that gets more critically panned until I had already been a big fan during this era of M. Night Shyamalan. So when you watch this one last, mm-hmm. how does that contrast affect the way you see The Sixth Sense? Oh, so much. What ends up happening is you see all the critical things first Because I kind of went backwards in time chronologically, but by the time I got to The Sixth Sense, you were able to see all of the flaws that had occurred in subsequent films and kind of reconstruct. It's it's almost like looking at an air crash. (laughs) 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 Because you're like, okay, here's the air crash. And for us, we're going to say that the air crash is the happening or lady in the water around that time. And you go backwards and you start to put together the pieces of the plane and you go, okay, well, this part of the fuselage was... I don't know, it had frogs living in it or something. And you're going backwards and you start to put together where the different problems were. And when the airplane was still in flight and hadn't been, you know, invaded by frogs in the fuselage, you can see where, like, the wings are starting to rattle and you can see where the windows are popping out and where there's a drunken person in the cabin fighting an airline attendant. And that was the sixth sense for me. Altogether, the airplane was still whole, but there were things starting to pop Mm. out at me already by that point. Mm. And it was usually, like, the cadence in the script, like, weird lines that Bruce Willis or Haley Joel Osment saved by the grace of their acting. Mm. But you could tell any other actor that, that didn't either disregard the direction or wasn't directed as tightly would have flubbed. It's so weird that an 11-year-old can overcome that because normally when you look at, say, Star Wars Episode One, it's a very stilted script. There's a lot of really bad dialogue that isn't designed for human beings to read as if they're just talking. But the one person who can really overcome that movie, I think, is Liam Neeson, that he's the only person who doesn't come across like a robot. I can see sort of similar issues with M. Night Shyamalan, but the fact that an 11-year-old kid is able to overcome whatever issues that might exist in the script. But I also think it's a much more tight, reserved script than anything else that he's ever done. I'm not entirely sure how direction of children works versus direction of adult actors. Less but screaming. Less screaming, <laughs> but I bet there is also another... And this is not to discredit Haley Joel Osment. I do think he was really good in that. But I bet that they kind of went, we were going to let some of your personality show through. Because we know that, you know, you haven't lived as long as the average actor and therefore you have less to draw from. So I think that might have been the just kind of going, you are legitimately scared. It's not you're playing this character that goes to a private school that is scared of this. There's less, I don't know, over direction there. So maybe that was kind of what gave Haley Joel Osment a chance to shine. 
There's also something that you, we may want to consider just about, and I would submit that one of the biggest problems with M. Night Shyamalan's talent that comes out as you move further along is essentially the fact that there's some disconnect between how he wants the performances should be in his head and how they actually appear in the final film. It gets worse and worse as he goes along. Mm -hmm. This is a situation where you have the two main characters in Sixth Sense. You have someone who's an undead person and then someone who is a little kid who's half scared with fear. Those are situations where you can sort of justify lines and sort of reactions that are a little atypical. And since it's also a horror movie and he's given it a weird vibe, you kind of give it a pass, right? There's some of the stuff that you end up giving a pass. As you move further away from the sixth sense and then characters are actually supposed to be just real people that grow up to like some extraordinary situation, you're like, oh, okay, well, this sounds really weird and I don't understand where this comes from and it takes me out of the movie. And an interesting way to look at that is I bet if you look at the sixth sense and then look at Wide Awake... Because Wide Awake was supposed to be a sort of touchy-feely, happy, spiritual, finding-y movie that came out before The Sixth Sense did, and the script looks the same as The Sixth Sense, and which is kind of explained away by Bruce Willis and Haley Joel Osment, you know, the setup of the plot, making the lines kind of weird and it fitting, and the suspension of disbelief being okay, mm-hmm. falls apart in Wide Awake. Mm. Oh, because it's more of a straight drama. It's as a straight, to a... like, comedy drama, but you can... I'm sure you're the only one of us that actually watched his two (laughs) previous movies that, you know, I mean, yeah, for most people, he seemed to have sprung into existence with the sixth sense. And I think that's a narrative that Shyamalan himself pushes very hard. But you got to know what went wrong. So like, that's why I was like, okay, what happened here? So I had to watch the first two for that reason. (laughs) Yeah, that's the thing I really find myself coming to with this discussion of M. Night Shyamalan is I used to be such a hardcore fan. Now his name is such a deciding factor in getting me to not see a movie. I'm just so curious about how that is, and I want to give a fair hearing to this, because on one level, as our good friend Paul Roos says, it's a target-rich environment for derision. There are so many Mm. things you can laugh at in his later movies, Right. but I remember how so much I loved The Sixth Sense and a couple of his other early movies. I remember how much I got excited to hear there's another M. Night Shyamalan movie coming out, and I really want to dig into that moment. Because The Sixth Sense, I think, still holds up. I think this is a great movie. I think it's probably his best movie. It feels like so much of his career is a desperate grab to try to recreate that lightning in a bottle moment. Hmm. Getting into his second movie, which was only one year later, that was Unbreakable, which was, I guess, an unconventional look, and I'd say a risky one, at superhero movies. And here's the thing for a little bit of context, because superhero movies are just fucking everywhere nowadays. Mm -hmm. They weren't when Unbreakable came out. When Unbreakable came out, superhero movies were the first X-Men film, which came out like five or six months prior to Unbreakable. Right. And that was really the thing that kind of kicked off superheroes before with Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, it went into high gear. This was the era when everyone in a superhero movie still dressed kind of like the Matrix or Blade. Or still were left over with black rubber suits from Batman era sort of stuff, right? <laughs> a lot of trench coats, black yeah. rubber, yeah. everyone wearing wraparound shades. There's a lot of house music. <laughs> right. This was a superhero movie, Unbreakable, that wasn't one that looked like the movies we're used to now. So the question I want to ask is this. If Unbreakable came out now instead of in the year 2000, 14 years ago, how well do you think it would be received now that we're living in a superhero movie renaissance? It's too slow. There's too few cuts. There's too little actual development. 
basically the entire movie is the mental arc of David Dunn realizing that he is who he is. It's nearly a two-hour movie, whereas in a modern superhero movie, you contain that bit, that cool little hook of origin story within. Sometimes it can be as little as like five minutes like it is in Guardians of the Galaxy, or sometimes it takes up maybe the first 30 minutes of the movie. How long does it take in Captain America for him to get juiced up? Maybe an hour even? This is just tracing the guy's realization of being like, what happened to me? And then by the end of the movie, oh, right, I'm a superhero. Like, (laughs) too slow. And there's not enough actual like extraordinary circumstances that happen for him that necessitate what you would consider to be a superhero. There's not being thrown out or falling off of a cliff or being shot into rubble, you know, shot into concrete or something. It wouldn't play. He didn't drop from a rooftop in the three-point stance the way everybody does (laughs) now. No, he did not do that. (laughs) We all live in that superhero world now, and we know this is a movie that's 14 years old. How did you receive it? How did you like this movie with that bit of context and hindsight. What's kind of sad is I liked Unbreakable the most, despite the fact that it seemed like one of the more transparent ones that I saw. Well, they're all kind of transparent, but the whole slow burn that you're talking about, I think it ultimately added to the sympathy that you felt for the main character. And at the end of the day, like I kind of like snobby, pretentious indie film. And I think if it were released now, that's the venue that it would be the most successful in is they mm. would go an intimate look at the new superhero <laughs> and like they would show it at like an independent film kind of place. And I think it would actually do kind of well. I think it could do well because I think it would be a reaction to every other superhero movie out there. And I think people would perceive it as kind of the opposite of all the stuff you've been seeing recently. Yeah, I think I could see that, too, because what we saw with The Sixth Sense, which was, again, deliberate pacing, I'd say Hitchcockian. People always try to compare him to Spielberg, but I saw way more of him fanboying on yeah. Alfred yeah. Hitchcock. Because you could tell that more like, say, Vertigo or The Birds, where the big moments happen, but he saves them up for little things or makes them visual. One of the things in Unbreakable that I really love is the train crash sequence. Because right. the train crash sequence doesn't actually show the crash. It shows everything that leads up to it and then just cuts to white. Mm -hmm. What I really love about that is that you see him look around, you see the sense that, hey, the scenery is moving by a bit faster, and my chair is shaking a little bit more, and people are looking a little bit more nervous, and you hear the whistle go, and you see everything except for the explosion. What I love about it is it's an artistic choice, because that movie could afford to do the train crash, and it shows not to. This isn't like a Roger Corman moment where we're like, We can't afford to do it. How can we get around it? I'd argue that that sense of suspense is even more powerful when he's in the hospital afterward. Oh, And you have like kind of the guy rattling questions and then it's just a slow pan of all of the families of the dead just kind of staring at him. Or even as he wakes up and you're seeing a guy in bandage in the foreground and then he's breathing and then he's breathing and then blood starts to fill it up and you realize, oh, this guy's going to die too. He's going to be the only survivor. It's a really cool visual way if you're like, that guy's a... Oh, (laughs) and his chest stops moving up and down. Right. It's little moments like that where he has slowly realizing what's going on that I think that he's really at his best. I don't know. On some level, it felt like I haven't seen the first movies he did before The Sixth Sense, but Mm -hmm. it feels like with The Sixth Sense being the success that it was, it feels like this is the tone and the pacing that he chose to try to put on every movie. And sometimes it really works because I like Unbreakable quite a bit. And it's not just because I'm a huge superhero nerd and it's kind of cool to see these myths treated in an artistic way and in a serious way rather than biff boom pow which (laughs) is how they've been basically perceived from my childhood up until about 10 years ago where people are willing to look at this as a serious story with characters and stuff that just happened to wear bright colors and punch each other with fire 
when I referenced back to his earlier movies, I never, when I look at the career of anybody, expect someone to have found themselves right at their first film. So, like, those first two movies in particular, I get that, like, someone is trying to figure out who they are as a filmmaker. The weird thing is, is from my personal experience, I look at the movies like Sixth Sense and Unbreakable. He found himself as a filmmaker at that time, but the way he was perceived by everyone around him was he was this brand new filmmaker that had never done anything else before. And where is he going to go next? How is he going to find himself? When the weird thing is, I think he was at his height, the first two movies that became re- were really, really popular. So it was there's kind of a weird discrepancy. We had such hopes for him and the expectations were so high. That's why on Unbreakable, he got final cut privilege. Mm-hmm. And looking at that, it's insane. Yeah. That this guy was a 30 year old yeah. getting final cut privilege on a major motion picture. The idea that you would trust someone like that when you had characters in the film industry like Ridley Scott, who had already proven himself on things like Alien. And we just talked about this last month with Blade Runner. He did not get to choose what cut went into theaters. The producers who are thinking about money and they're thinking about marketability and they're thinking, I don't know, this is a little too heady. This is a little too long. This is a little too slow. We got to chop this up to make it easier for a mass audience to digest. I mean, have you ever seen M. Night Shyamalan? He's got some pretty hypnotic eyes. Maybe he just hypnotized. <laughs> Held up a swirling disc. Yes, yes. He's got, that, he's got that necklace on. You don't know what's in that necklace. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh my God. So Come it's... on, he's dreamy, but also a little bit scary. Just look Ooh. at him. I think a theremin just started playing somewhere. You know, I feel like part of the thing that allowed him this sort of amazing success is that he just became this, this incredible known quantity. It was like, oh, he's amazing. He's very popular. People go see it. Now we know what an M. Night Shyamalan movie is. It's kind of strange to have one popular movie and then have everyone be able to pigeonhole exactly what it is that's great about his movie because the formula is simple and effective. And I think that overhype with him, that looking out for the twist in his movies that came after was really what started his precipitous decline, right? Because I think he probably had to service that because there was that expectation, you know? To have every movie has to have a twist Correct. Uh, You use this analogy all the time to talk about other things, but the Joe Millionaire analogy, this is the reality show in the late 90s, I suppose, where it was sort of a second or third generation reality TV show wherein the plot scenario was there's a guy who's a plant and then all of the other people are quote unquote normal people, reality contestants. And there's a twist in the scenario where at the end, the guy who's the plant is revealed to be something that he isn't. And so it's great because we get to see their surprise. And that that's what makes for the interesting reality drama, except that for every reality TV show that came after that, everyone who is a contestant and the audience would be expecting, oh, wait, at any point in time, some could just like pull the rug out from under us and change the scenario. And so we need to be a little more meta and savvy. And I feel like he is victim to that very thing is, oh, he needs to have a twist that's a bigger twist or a twist that's in a different way or a twist that untwists itself or something, right? Like, so he has to continue to second guess himself about how he does this twist thing, because without an M. Night Shyamalan twist, it's not a Shyamalan movie. It sounds like as time goes on, that second guessing becomes clearer and clearer in the process and you can see it more painfully. But when you're looking for a twist in a movie theater, when I'm sitting in a movie theater thinking this movie is going to have a twist ending, not because I heard that it did or a critic implied that it did, but just because the name in the credit says M. Night Shyamalan. So I'm like, what's the twist? What's the twist? When I'm sitting there looking for clues before there's any hint that there's going to be a twist, 
isn't that taking me out of the movie? Of and isn't that the problem? Yes. Does that mean it's like the movie equivalent to like a Where's Waldo puzzle? <laughs> <laughs> Where you're essentially like, okay, Waldo is here somewhere. Here's a crowd of people in a swimming pool. All right, got to find him. It's, it's a lady. <laughs> so a lady. Oh, twist. Oh, <laughs> very nice. But that's the thing is that with Where's Waldo, you know, the point of the book is that he's hidden in every page, has him somewhere. But if he shows up in random in a book that isn't Where's Waldo, it's surprising. <laughs> but then every time you're like, oh, I just assume Waldo's going to be there. This is the weirdest adaptation of The Tale of Two Cities I've ever read. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing I think really started to hurt him because his first big movie, The Sixth Sense, had a twist ending. His second big movie, Unbreakable, had another twist ending. And his third big movie kind of had a twist ending well everything's a twist right it's all every little element that comes together in the end is can i ask you guys because you saw these as they came out mm. were they really like bam twist in the literally the last five minutes of the movie to you guys no not or, signs. Oh, wait okay. what's next signs or village signs. signs okay we can go signs i'm really <laughs> hoping to get to the village oh, oh my. my god oh. you're the only person who says that sentence <laughs> she, <ever>. has, <laughs> she has note cards no because of exactly what you're saying falling victim to you go into the theater you're completely taken out of the movie because you know you're hunting for the twist but right. th that was there with signs so we can talk about signs for a minute twist hunters so <laughs> this is the weird kind of moment i think there's a second era of m night Shyamalan, and i think we can just lump signs and the village into one one big oh, yeah. amorphous, yeah, yeah. Yes. twisty, the ambient signage. blob. The, tw yeah. the twisty blob. <laughs> so thinking about this, this was the era where I started to have some serious doubts about this guy because I was on fucking board for both The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable. I was there. I was a fanboy. And I liked Signs. I, I still like Signs. And having rewatched it just last week, I think it's also the movie where his problems really start to become much more readily apparent. They were always kind of there. Like we talked about the stilted dialogue. That's always kind of there. But I think Signs is the one where the weird humor started to come in. Well, there's also no reason for there to be stilted dialogue in Signs. They're normal people, They're, right? Exactly. As you were saying, this is a tragic circumstance of a family that's, you know, lost their mother, wife, etc. A guy who's going through a struggle crisis of faith. That's a pretty good, you know, scenario, premise for a movie. And then something weird happens. That's normal. Why is there a reason to have complete dead-on shots? I'm, I didn't go to film school, Casey, so you can help me with this one. I don't know what it is when you're, like, looking straight at the person and they're talking at the camera, okay? Full of those shots and full of stilted dialogue that doesn't make any sense. There's no reason for it. It does appear a little strange, and there is a lot of stuff that pops out in Signs. I actually love Joaquin Phoenix in this movie more than anything else, and it's mainly because of his physicality. Like, the first time you see him, he, like, leaps out of bed. He's sleeping in the back house, and he hears, like, the kids scream or something. And he's their uncle, and he's very protective. It seems like a very close-knit family. And the way that he sort of, like, he does, like, a roll out of the bed onto his feet and starts to run is, like, amazing. <laughs> there's some so some really good physicality in the acting, and there's some really genuine good moments of levity in that movie, I think, that where you saw, like, oh, my God, if he wanted to, M. Night Shyamalan could direct a comedy. Like, he could actually, conceivably at this point, direct a comedy. It's just that when you then unravel it to be about, like, how we're reacting to alien invasion coming out, then you're just sort of like, well, wait a minute. Okay, this now feels like two different movies. Well, and the fact is, before we even know or suspect that there's some alien invasion, the way that people are completely non-reactive... Yeah. So there's a scene when, yeah. unfortunately, the, the older child has to slay their pet dog, their family dog, oh, yeah, for attacking the little child. That's really weird. And you see Mel Gibson, who is arguably a very expressive actor, mm -hmm. be completely deadpan. Was he instructed? Was he directed to be deadpan and be like, hmm, 
yes, killed the dog with a fork. Okay. <laughs> Not the fork. Go go get your little sister. Right? I mean, like, there's no reaction there. And are we supposed to think that he's so completely removed emotionally because he's suffering a crisis of faith and the death of his wife? But at the same time, the only kid who's super expressive or the only actor who's expressive is the little boy Culkin yeah. in that whole thing. You even have Abigail Breslin, who I will say upon rewatching this, I was like, oh, that's Abigail Breslin. I'm so excited that she's known for Little Miss Sunshine right. and not for this. Right. <laughs> oh. right. I think a lot of the weird, quirky, regular people stuff really flooded into this movie. It feels like badly done Coen Brothers. The Coen Brothers Hmm. are fucking amazing at weird yokels and odd people who come into the story, who do sort of weird character things at the actor, or have a bizarre monologue about balloons at a convenience store like, what, they come in any funny shapes? Not less rounds funny. (laughs) <laughs> or, you know, like the stuff about... And that's fun- endearing. Yeah, it's weird and it's quirky and it feels like he's trying for it in this movie and sometimes it works and sometimes it fails. I like little moments, but sometimes he drags them out too long where just a look on Mel Gibson's face is enough to say that pharmacist girl is weird. <laughs> that it should have just ended on that scene should be about two minutes shorter. Right. Just him coming back into the diner with his family and going, I don't want you talking to that girl anymore. Well, and see, here's the thing. You see Mel Gibson being expressive, being emotive, being protective. So why, when the kid killed the dog, was he completely deadpan? Like, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And it's, it's to me, an inability for M. Night Shyamalan to understand human interface. Duh. Oh, that that's a really good way to put it. The thing that irritated me the most in that film, and it's quite shallow, was that after they killed the dog, they forgot about the other dog. <laughs> no, <laughs> no yeah, they went, oh, they're like, go tie up Isabel, the other oh, dog. No, they go tie oh, up Isabel, and they're like, oh, we forgot her. We She's forgot. outside. Nah, bye. <laughs> I would say that the weird part about, I mean, I was reading stuff with M. Night Shyamalan interviews, and he was saying that his fundamental thing that he wants to communicate in his movies is about belief and whether or not that's about making the audience believe something, which admittedly, that's basically what a filmmaker tries to do is to take something that's complete fiction and create the suspension of disbelief, as well as making their belief as the characters. And certainly, this is a very, not very thinly veiled, what is it, they call it, natheists, right? <laughs> is that what they say on TV tropes? It's the character who knows very well that God or the supernatural exists, but likes to say, oh, no, it's, it's none of that's real. And then, of course, the whole movie is about sort of them overcoming that denial of reality. This is probably a more personal thing for me, but making the whole movie about the guy coming back to the faith, as opposed to, I don't know, about having a movie about how their lives and their emotions and their worldviews would really change if aliens did show up. Because that didn't seem reasonable to me. It just seemed like it could just be a family comedy that just happened to have aliens dropped in in the middle of it. And, and Mel Gibson chopping off a dude's fingers. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So it just didn't sell it to me. And it, that seemed like it was unnecessarily sort of loaded into it to give it more drama than the movie actually should have had. I guess the question is, do you think there's the classic idea of biting off more than you could chew? Hmm. And I agree. I think it would have been awesome if it was just kind of a quirky comedy where a guy cared about his family and maybe he had kind of a troubled plot things in his past happened to him, but they deal with an alien invasion and la da 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 the end. Then you get Independence Day. (laughs) (laughs) Mel Gibson punching an alien in the face saying, welcome to Earth. (laughs) Welcome to Earth. Welcome to Earth. And I'm not even going to talk about the rants he would go into about aliens. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, this is Mel Gibson pre-rant. Oh, I, I, I was thinking that whole thing while I was watching. Right. I, was I think like, this pre-rant. is the last but, time I saw Mel Gibson in a movie and didn't immediately think, oh, he's just a racist bully. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe the issue here is that there is too much to unpack. 
Yeah. And that if things were pared down slightly, the movie would have been more successful. But there's that whole shoehorning of the spirituality thing. And even he he could have still been a pastor. And I think it would have been fine. I think that addressing someone's spirituality when they figure out that earthlings, that organisms of Earth are not the only organisms that are alive in the world would be a really compelling story to tell. I think if you want to try and pack all that in, you got to do it in a really clever way. I think you can have a... This was not a, clever. Yeah, shoehorn a, yeah. would be my word for it. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. You can have like the quirky aliens come to Earth comedy and you can have the holy crap aliens come to Earth. My entire view of reality has been shaken up. But it would take a freaking genius to be able to meld those two in any sort of coherent Which, way. Which at this point, he was supposed to be a freaking genius of film storytelling. So I think we've all decided that Signs is a failure. We can go home, right? Uh, actually, I like, <laughs> I'm going to be a little voice in a sentence and say I like a lot of things about Signs. I think that Signs is the first movie where his flaws, especially as far as character and humor go, are the most apparent early in his career. But I think the <laughs> things... <Come here. laughs> But I think the things that work in Signs work really, really well. Like, what is a very basic, primal fear that we all have? We've had it at some point in our life. Scary I, monsters. A loss of a parent? No, I'm thinking even more primal than that. Chicken I, teriyaki. Yes! <laughs> I think that there's something outside my house. I can't see it, mm. but I hear it scratching and it wants to hurt me. Hmm. That is a classic boogeyman story, but aimed at adults. And I think they do a great job with the idea of holding back seeing the alien. You see the silhouette of him standing on the roof in that moment, or you see his calf pull into the corn. Right. Oh my fucking God, there is a thing out here. The idea of hearing them at the door and going, wait, this is just superficial. They're just trying to distract us and seeing the hand come out in the coal chute and grab the kid. Little things like that, I think, are done so well. You hear them running on the roof. You hear the broken window while he's trying to comfort his kids and try to keep them from freaking out. And him and his brother are trying to keep their family safe. That stuff, I think, is so well done. I'm as much an atheist as anybody else, more so than many. I guess I don't mind the spiritual stuff as much because it doesn't come across like a Kirk Cameron movie. It's not straight out, I'm going to preach about how you're bad because you enjoy evil Hollywood and all the usual bullshit that gets foisted into those movies. No, it is an honest exploration of someone's faith yeah. during a crisis. But I would say that there's something that is dishonest and exploitative about the main way in which they present sort of the moral dilemma and the spiritual, the faith aspect for his character, which they create what I consider to be a false dichotomy. He's essentially doing the either you believe there's a plan or we're all alone and it's just all chance and everything is terrible. To me, that is, I think M. Night Shyamalan is Christian or at least he's it's some manner of religious because- I think he's a Hindu actually. Oh, is he? But he's, thought, anyways, he's a spiritualist, clearly. In, in, in any event, yes. It really is not a very honest way, I think, of making a general audience movie about someone's spiritual crisis when there's an alien invasion. I think, for example, you couldn't get any better than the way it was depicted in Contact, for example, where you have someone to make the theistic point of view about belief in the unknown, and then you have the skeptics part of it. And it isn't a duality where one person is a nihilist. <laughs> I think the, that's fair, because I think when you look at Contact at the same time, it's not a straw man look at a faith-based character either. Correct. You know, Matthew McConaughey is a pastor who's treated very fairly in Contact. Sure. So I can get what you're making, the argument. I guess it doesn't bother you as much because it doesn't feel like a Sunday school rant being directed at me. So it's easier for me to swallow it. I also kind of like that on one level, it, 
Yeah, I have my own personal beliefs, but I guess when I go into the fictional world of a movie, I'm dealing with the rules of that universe. I guess the only thing that I'll say about it, if I haven't said enough, is that it just feels like a very cheap way to present that dilemma for characters in a movie, and I didn't think they even developed it very well. It was cheap, and as a character, it didn't do him any justice. Yeah. Like, I've been, in as an atheist, like, there have been films where I've seen characters questioning their faith and that sort of thing, and... Ultimately, I want that conflict and insecurity and vulnerability to add to the character and make them more compelling for me. If anything, I found a lot of the stuff that he would say, oh, there's no God. I found it kind of tedious because it was just to go, yes, this is reaffirming a one adjective description of this character. And if anything, I think it detracted. But the way that I guess you could say fate rather than faith, I think, was used in this movie, that the things Mm. that made characters quirky and annoying were things that ultimately saved them. I like when it's Mm. done that way, like Abigail Breslin's character leaving half-filled glasses of water around the house, and that water ultimately being the thing that's like acid to these aliens. And the failed baseball player who then swings away. The things like that, I think, kind of pull together. And you don't have to go really Christian-y so much as just that we're all given the tools we need to survive. Yeah, but I'm glad you mentioned that point, because to me, I hate when movies do that. When every little bit of conspicuous detail that is unexplained throughout the movie then has to coalesce. It's kind of like, as they call it, Chekhov's gun or Chekhov's armory, where like if you're showing an element in it, you've got to use it. And so in this, you have this propensity of these things that have to coalesce at the end. And for me, it's like, I understand, but it's you're just doing too much. You're doing way too much. Literally everything is a setup for everything. Like, there's a movie called Jeff Who Lives at Home with Jason Siegel, and that like the whole movie is this naive character, like he just has to go with the flow and believe, and then in the end all of his crazy delusions manifest themselves in reality, and then it's right. And this is like it's these clap for Tinkerbell moments, right? Where you if you just believe and go along with it, everything will be okay. And to me, that's really insulting as as a member of the audience. It's just sort of saying, These things are here, you just gotta believe that they're here for a reason. And in the end, we'll just pack them all into 30 seconds. And boy, aren't we glad that they were there. So I think that probably brings us into his next work, which is the shut, one that... Shut up about that science case. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> I think Let's we got to get to the village because I think Becky is going to explode. <laughs> because She's practically the... like bouncing in her chair. <laughs> I am because I am one of the most gullible, naive movie watchers ever. And this was the first film whose plot I predicted as it was unfolding before me, and I was so proud of myself at age, like, 20 or however, I don't know. It was amazing how I, idiotic ingenue, was able to guess the ending of this. (laughs) She used the word ingenue. Nice. Uh, But did you want to preface it with something, Mike? Yeah, I think this was the movie that also hit the same twist. It hit the twist way harder, I think, than any of his movies before. It is. Waldo Waldo. is all over that fucking movie. He's practically popping his head out behind trees going, (laughs) whoa. Even his red and white striped shirt, right? Oh, my. (laughs) That's the thing I find so infuriating is that his early movies, it would make the rules up like it gets cold when there are ghosts around. But this movie, they would explain everything, and they would even explain everything that came to nothing, including the fact that, ooh, don't have red anywhere. The monsters get angry at red, and it means fucking nothing. Mm. And they were explaining stuff, and more and more we're getting a lot of this show-don't-tell, which is the opposite of where he is at his best. Sure. We're never told that ghosts make things cold outright. We get enough hints to go, oh, it's getting really cold in here. Or, oh, wow, it's chilly. Oh, is it cold in here? You get a lot of those hints spread out throughout the movie, not all in one scene. Right. Or you see somebody's breath. In this movie, they straight out go, there are monsters out there, and they don't like red, and these are the rules, and... 
it just starts to feel weirder and weirder. And I know that the impression, and let's spoil the shit out of this movie. This movie is supposed to be taking place in like the 1800s with pioneer people, but it's really taking place in a park in the modern day. Mm-hmm. Even before we get to that reveal, the dialogue still feels stilted. It feels like a bunch of people in a community theater pioneer play. <laughs> Colonial Williamsburg. It does. It feels like William Hurt is going to show me how to use the butter churn. (laughs) I would watch that. And and Bryce Dallas Howard, after 8 p.m., when Williamsburg closes, puts on her eyeshadow and goes out clubbing, right? (laughs) It's so weird. The old club. Yes. It's so weird, that movie, because I know that those things only exist to trick the audience. They make no sense in the context of the story. How many years did they fake having monsters in the outskirts of their thing before kids were even born? Have they only been doing this for a while? Did they put on the fake, you know, ye oldie times accents for the kids' benefits? And if the kids know nothing else, why do you need to fake those accents? Because the kids don't know that pioneers talk like that. They could talk like fucking Huggy Bear from Starsky and Hutch. (laughs) And it would change nothing. But it would change what the audience is gullible to. Because it doesn't make sense in the story. It only makes sense as a way of tricking the audience. Speaking of tricking the audience. So, Mike, you asked us in the beginning of the hour, take us back to where you were when you first saw The Sixth Sense. And sometimes we saw it in the movie and it was full of the suspense. I saw this in a theater, and not just any showing. Have you ever been to a sneak preview in a theater? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we had won tickets. I was visiting friends, and we were in San Francisco. We had won tickets to the screening in one of these big stadium-style theaters, right? Mm. And they always give out more tickets than there are spaces. So it's, you know, because they want to pack the theater. So we're there. Me and my friend Jesse, we're college kids, and we couldn't sit together because they just packed the theater. We were towards the back of the line. We wanted to get in. This was cool, right? And so we're seated. I'm seated sort of kitty corner behind her, like just in back of her. People all everywhere have popcorn. They give out free stuff because they want people to get really immersed in this experience. And then sometimes before sneak preview, you know, or advanced screenings, they have someone from the production team come out and like talk to the audience, get them really psyched up, get them really immersed. So we're like, woo, everyone's cheering. So they actually primed the audience with exactly what you were referring to in terms of go look for the twist. Go look for the plot twist. The previews had the same kind of thing. This is something no one has ever expected before. I'm sorry if I'm like a 19-year-old kid and I've read um, The Giver in fifth grade and I I (laughs) was made to read The Lottery in 10th grade short story, right? Mm. You're going to start picking up on all of those little cues. Mm -hmm. And for that reason, it was just so silly because the audience of advanced screeners is now trying to be smart. They're not trying to be immersed in the movie. They're now trying to be smarter than the movie. Which I relished because I was a conceited asshole. Um, (laughs) But I liked being smarter than a movie. But it got to the point where a movie that was supposed to be scary made me laugh. And for me to laugh, and it was one of the parts where Adrian Brody was stomping around with red berries or something. I don't remember exactly. (laughs) And it was one of those little like, wow, you know, jump. And I started laughing. And I am the most, I teach. I have my pen on the whiteboard. The fire alarm goes off and I scream and throw my markers. Like I am an easily startled person. This movie was a time when there was supposed to be a wow moment. And I laughed. (laughs) That's not supposed to happen. And then people behind me threw popcorn at me. (laughs) (laughs) And then you jumped. Sad story. (laughs) I jumped because of the popcorn. No. And my friend Jessie was sitting in front of me and she sort of turned around. She was like, yeah, I'm with you. (sighs) Uh, So I think if there's one thing we cannot fault M. Night Shyamalan for, it's his ambition. 
even at his worst, which we're going to get into right now, we're going to talk about the bottom fucking falling out on his career, and that's the happening from 2008. You cannot say that movie is not ambitious. It's a movie that tries to take images and sounds that are normally part of a relaxation tape. We're talking about a gentle breeze (laughs) across a field. We're talking about swaying trees in a gentle wind and trying to make those terrifying. No matter what else you can say about that movie, and we are about to fucking unload, (laughs) that is pretty ballsy. I mean, it's about as difficult as to make uh, Mark Wahlberg act like a real human being. Yeah, and they tried to do that, too. (laughs) So... What we really have with this movie is... What? No. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) That whole movie is... What? Oh. Oh. That's his performance. So what we really have going on in this movie, I think, can be summed up in a commercial I saw on BBC America just about a week ago. Top Gear is doing a special, and the title of the special is Top Gear colon Ambitious but rubbish. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that that sums up what happens with the happening because this was his attempted Hail Mary pass. Mm -hmm. This is a point where everyone was giggling at Adrian Brody. Everyone was looking for the twist and often finding them out in the first half an hour of a movie. And then after that, they fell asleep to Lady in the Water. I know. Oh, my fucking God, that movie. So we have this era of his filmmaking where his back is to the wall and this has got to be a hit and he swings for the fences and... Yeah. He swings for the fences and accidentally hits himself in the head with a bat, and the the ambulance is called. Swing away, M. Night. (laughs) But then the ambulance bursts into flames because there were poisoned trees that poisoned the driver, and yeah. Would you like to hear me do an impression of what it was like for me to watch The Happening, which I watched it for the very first time? About every four minutes. Oh. (laughs) Oh. Like, I was, for about 45 minutes through most of the middle of the movie, I was drumming my fingers on my desk. Just like doing a Picard face palm and just <laughs> ugging aloud because I think Zoe Deschanel's probably an okay comedic actress, terrible dramatic actor, and you even have great dramatic actors like John Leguizamo, someone who can carry a movie by himself. Like he did this one man Broadway show where he played like a hundred and something characters. He's a fantastic actor. And then you have the scene where they're on the train trying to get out of the city and he tries to get a call for his wife or something. And he says something like, she is headed to the town of Princeton. <laughs> like... <laughs> What? Dude, is, is it a virus? Wait, God, the, the words are terrible. The way that they enunciate the words. Princeton's a town. Did you know that? I, that it is the town of Princeton. <laughs> I just like how. Let's do a math problem. How is it possible? How? I actually possible? have a weird like 9-11 truther-esque sort of conspiracy narrative in my head no. of what M. Night Shyamalan was thinking while he was making this film in particular. Because you'll look at it and you know how it kind of waffles and it looks like it might be making fun of itself and it's going to go into like B-movie territory and you're like, oh, awesome. This is going to be funny. And then it doesn't. And then there's like all seriousness again. Say what you like about Zoe Deschanel and Mark Wahlberg and even John Leguizamo has actually gotten some stuff thrown at him during his career. Sure. But I think what would happen is it's a classic case of super over-direction of the actors. Where M. Night would come in and he'd go, Herper Derp, I'm M. Night. And he goes, this is going to be great. It's really fun. Just have fun with the lines. Act as over the top or dumb as you want. And then he'd go and like morph into a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde sort of thing and go, this is the most important thing of your life. You need to change everything that you're doing right now in this take and make it sound like your life is in danger. (laughs) And he did that just over the course of the entire filming. And by the end, the entire cast is so done 
that they're like, just say the fucking line so we can leave. <laughs> what? No, I don't want to kill you. That's not at all what we wanted. The whole movie is full of these interactions that made me feel that this was a film written by aliens. <laughs> now imagine that we are in the far future. Humanity has extinguished itself. There's nothing but empty skyscrapers covered with moss and vines. An alien species lands here and wants to understand what happened. Who were these people? And then they find our movies. And one of those aliens goes, these people are fascinating. I want to write a movie about them. I've never met one of them in person. I don't know what the human experience is like, but I want to tell a story using these creatures. The happening feels like that movie. I use Zoe Deschanel's character in that film as a reminder of how not to act in my marriage. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Everyone in this movie is about 10 seconds away from tears at every single moment. Every moment that's supposed to be funny just feels awkward. And half of the other moments, I don't even know if it's supposed to be funny or not. I don't know what to feel. That's how I had, I'm like, I have to justify this in my head. That's where that big narrative of like, I think he wanted to let go of control a bit and let people have fun. And then he panics and goes, I have to regain control of this back. It's going to flop. It's going to flop. And he would go, oh, okay, let's relax a little bit. And it's like this weird sort of split personality thing he does. And I think it's really something that happens during the direction and the weird thing is there's a couple moments in this movie, and I think we should probably unpack what the plot is. Trees are trying to kill people. Surprise, surprise. Plants are <laughs> releasing a pheromone or hormone that makes people turn on themselves and commit suicide, so there will be fewer humans in the world and more place for plants to live. You know, the first 10 minutes of it, if you ignore the fact that the dialogue problems happen right away when it's a woman and another woman reading books next to each other and the woman kind of zones out and she goes, they're not reading the same book, they're reading their own book. And she goes, where was I again? And then the other lady says, you're at the part where the killer goes, blah, blah, blah. Wait a minute. How does the other woman sitting next to her know where she was in her book? Were they reading aloud to each other? Anyways, the first 10 minutes were actually kind of crazy. Like the thing when you see construction workers walking off the building building is kind of really unsettling. There's the first opening is really unsettling. And then Mark Wahlberg is science teacher. And then it's just like, science (laughs) isn't, why don't you think science is important? You have a pretty face. (laughs) I once had a pretty face. (laughs) This is the part that I find really frustrating about the movie is the suicide sequences are really well done. Mm -hmm. They are. They're scary. They're unsettling, just like you said. There's one where a guy gets off a ride upon lawnmower and lets it mow over himself. That's terrifying. What could make someone do that? It's freaky because it's done in such a cattle-like way, like calmly set the lever, walk down, lay down. (laughs) it's really well done my favorite sequence in that whole movie and i wish so much that this would be taken out with a scalpel and put into another movie is a part where a police officer takes out their own gun shoots themselves in the head they drop down the gun rolls out of their hand another person who's affected walks up shoots themselves drops it and then one by one you don't see their faces you just see their knees downward and you see them reach down pick up the gun you hear the shot go off you see them drop And it's done so well. It's haunting. It's slow. I don't even believe it has music playing under it. It's just a really effective visual filmmaking. And it's in a fucking movie where there's a scene where Mark Wahlberg is trying to negotiate with a plastic fucking plant. (laughs) What the fuck, M. (laughs) Nights? This was the first movie that he did that was an R rating. 
Yes, and they bragged about that in trailers. What was our rate? Oh, I guess the killing yourself, like with bloody everything. Okay, well, lions yeah, all the ripping your limbs off. Okay, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah that was a big part of the promotion for this movie, is that this was part of the Hail Mary Pass. Come on, he's R-rated this time. He can show blood! <laughs> <laughs> is it weird that even to an extent the Sixth Sense felt this way, which I think is on par with like his goriest movies, they all felt kind of weirdly sanitized? Anybody else get that feeling? There is a little bit of sense like you can smell bleach while watching them. You can them. smell bleach or like for Lady in the Water Everything's in pretty clean. I mean, every set, I mean, except for the old lady's house at the end, everything seems like very well swept, very well maintained. Even New York City he where you are. He uses a model home as one of his like primary right. plot right. vectors, yes. right? Yes. It feels like all of them, and he's used this as in interviews as like a marketing thing before, but it feels like all of them can have an easily adaptable version that you would tell a child before they go to bed at night. So he's basically taking all of his Campfire Goosebumps stories and making them into yeah. million dollar films. There are all Stein movies with a little bit more gore in them. Is what <laughs> and they she are. took off her Joker necklace and her head fell off! <laughs> <laughs> so in his review of The Happening, Richard Corliss of Time Magazine wrote, The writer-director's disintegration from robust artistic health to narrative incoherence, from hitmaker to box office loser, has an almost tragic trajectory. It's a saga worthy of being told by the young M. Night Shyamalan. Perhaps with his next film, he'll have a surprise twist of cinematic brilliance that will explain and atone for the creepy stuff that's been happening to him. (laughs) So I'm a bit torn on this, and this is how I want to wrap this discussion up. I wonder if there's any other director out there that I want to see return to greatness more than M. Night Shyamalan. And there's the other part of me that's like Mickey at the end of Rocky, where he's just gotten knocked down. Stay down, Rock. Stay down. Just stay down. Stop getting back up. Right. Where he's just going to get hurt more. Do you guys think that M. Night Shyamalan still has a good film in him, or should he just stay down? I was just talking with this about to my mother-in-law this evening about what we were talking about, and I came up with the analogy right off the top of my head. It's kind of like watching one of the most talented ballet dancers in the world get Lou Gehrig's disease, because you can see how they can be amazing, and then you can see over a long period of time how they fall into dysfunction, and it's just sad. Like, it's fun to make fun of how bad the happening is, but when you realize he was supposed to legitimately be the next big young filmmaker for a whole generation, and instead, he's an embarrassment. It's painful to watch the happening. It's painful. I have a thing about M. Night Shyamalan. I have an idea. So, Rosalind, you shared your idea about his direction and how it went in The Happening. As I look at the trajectory of his movies and elements that he finds important to incorporate, and I'm going to actually link this to After Earth. After Earth was not oh. was not solely M. Night Shyamalan. There was a lot of Will Smith in there. You see that he has the same sort of pacing and the same sort of weird treatment that belies a complete misunderstanding of human interface. So like what Mike <laughs> was saying in terms of aliens make this movie about these fascinating creatures. I think that M. Night Shyamalan either is not neurotypical in some weird way. Maybe he has an endocrine thing where he doesn't... What? He No, really. He... So... In After Earth... Becky, are you going to accuse him of being a space alien? <laughs> no, I'm... I'm that would gen- be a real twist. It would be a real <laughs> twist. It would be an M. Night Shyamalan twist. I'm going to accuse him gently of being on the autism spectrum, for which I'll probably get it in the neck from a lot of our listeners, but here's my idea. Becky's personal email address is... <laughs> here's my idea. So in The Happening, he focused on this weird hormone that affects people, right? In After Earth, he sort of deals with whether you can block your own fear and block your own self from secreting adrenaline so that the scary things that detect your adrenaline pheromones don't notice you. 
He looks at, you know, the village where clearly you have Adrian Brody's character that's developmentally disabled and or autistic and or just not really having this interface. So M. Night Shyamalan either is himself not neurotypical in some weird way or he's fascinated by someone who does not think and interface normally with human beings. And I think it's the latter. I think M. Night Shyamalan is completely typical. He's completely normal, but he's fascinated by it and he wishes that he were special in some way. He wishes that he were magical. He wishes that he had a different way to perceive the world. He wishes that he could see ghosts. He wishes that he could look beyond the village elders. He wishes that he could block himself from being seen by not secreting any fear hormones. Mm. He wishes that he were a plant that could kill everyone. I I really... (laughs) So do I think that there is a comeback for M. Night Shyamalan? It was somewhat there with After Earth. I will say that I was pleasantly not completely disappointed because I was with you, Mike. I was like, oh my goodness, I laugh when I see his name attached to this as much as they tried to hide it. I watched it. I like science fiction. It's plotting. It's slow. It's an interesting exploration. I think Dune dealt with fear as the mind killer way better. That may be influenced from my spouse, of course. But do I think that there is hope for M. Night Shyamalan? If he gets beyond his obsession with I'm not special, so I'm going to explore that in all of my characters, then I think there may be hope for him. Wow. How do I top that? Um, I don't think... With hot dogs. With hot dogs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, my God. They get a bad rap. With hot dogs. I brought... Don't forget the mustard. No. (laughs) Sorry. God. (laughs) How are you doing? Um, I don't think he's fascinated by non-neurotypical stuff that you were thinking about. I do think we all want to pretend that we're special snowflakes sometimes, and I don't think he's any different. That being said, when people give you such an amount of praise that maybe you can't process it, you have a habit of going, oh, (laughs) I can do no wrong. That explains kind of the trajectory of how far he's fallen. I do think he has a career ahead of him. And I think that as he matures, the one way to salvage that career is to realize that there are other human beings in his sphere of influence beyond him and to go, you know, I can write this, but should I direct it? And the first thing he's going to do is instinctively want to go, yes, because that's what he's always done. He needs to write a script and give it to someone else. He needs to take someone else's screenplay and direct it without it becoming the last airbender. He needs to be able to mature in these ways that I think he hasn't had a chance to do. I think he was pressured to produce and produce and produce. I think he should Alan Smithy a film. Yeah, I, honestly, I think that's a wonderful idea. I think it would be an amazing thing for him to not just do what he did with After Earth, where they just kind of just don't show that he's there. He needs an alter ego. Yes, yeah. he needs a nom de plume. You know, this is exactly what happened to J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling, the creator of Harry Potter, had those huge expectations on her that everything that she writes would be this massive hit. And then she writes basically a little village drama book, and it doesn't do well. And you can tell those expectations are on her. Now she has both the freedom and the financial freedom as well to do whatever she wants now. And she wants to do something very different from Harry Potter. What does she do? She writes a book, a mystery novel, under the name Robert Galbraith. People are able to read it and judge it, not knowing it's her on its own merits rather than the expectations. And they like it a lot. Hmm. And she's able to create a second era of her career, even though everyone knows that it's her. They're able to separate it from the expectations that she's the greatest children's author of all time. Hmm. Do we think, though, that we're already seeing his attempt to do that in terms of Last Airbender, take something that was pre-existing? To take After Earth and say this is a concept promoted by by Will Smith. And Scientology. And Scientology. There's a huge volcano in it. Spoilers. <laughs> There's a question with The Last Airbender, though, of was this something that people wanted him to do or was it something that he did and thought that this would jumpstart his career? 
Probably the latter. Yeah, I get yeah. the feeling he went, this is a franchise. It can't hurt to just do it and make it look cool. And yeah, tons of kids will watch it. I think in that respect, he kind of did it with very little artistic integrity because he was just trying to salvage his career at mm-hmm. that point. And I really think that that shielded the downfall of his career a little bit because even though it was a terrible movie, it was a profitable movie, despite the fact that it wasn't done very well and is almost universally panned because it was a popular franchise. It made a shit ton of money. So mm-hmm. that's good for him. I mean, that keeping him alive. So he's still alive for sure. Where he goes from here, maybe he shouldn't try to do a horror or a high action movie. Maybe he should try to do a comedy. And on that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with High Point, Low Point. And we are back on Radio vs. the Martians. We are talking about the rise and fall of filmmaker M. Night Shyamalan. And it's time for High Point, Low Point. This is where we go to the top of the mountain, the bottom of the barrel. I want to kick this off by looking at you, Casey. What is the low point of M. Night Shyamalan? You know, it really didn't hit me until you wanted to prepare me for this. And we've been talking about this for over a year to do M. Night as one of our topics. The last movie that I saw in the theater was The Village. And I wouldn't say that I, at the time I thought it was terrible. I just completely lost my taste for wanting to watch M. Night Shyamalan movies. And I just didn't care after that. The happening, though, was just, it was it was awful. It was the type of experience where I've never walked out on a movie before in my life. But if I had seen it in the theater, hey, I even stayed the entire way and watched Deep Blue Sea. That tells you how good I am about making sure that I get my money out of a movie theater ticket. Had I seen this in the movie theater, I would have left after a half an hour. I would have walked out of the theater. And this film convinced me that I will never, ever pay for an M. Night Shyamalan movie again in my entire life. This movie for me is like a 90-minute George Costanza. You know how on Seinfeld there are some of those plots where George Costanza is being just such an idiot that it burns and it hurts on the inside and it's painful to watch? That was this entire movie for me. In addition to the other reasons that we talked about earlier with the happening, like it just amplified all of the weaknesses that you would have known about M. Night's work, the wooden acting, the terrible dialogue, his way of having to beat the expectation of a twist ending, because I guess you sort of get the twist very, very early on and the main character is kind of juggling in his head what you already know for a long time. All of those things in that package just coalesce in this point. And also the Tak Fujimoto, who is an incredibly talented cinematographer who's worked, he did Sixth Sense and uh, Unbreakable and stuff. Very, very old school Hollywood cinematographer just wasted. This just seems like the biggest of the wasted opportunities and the reason why I'm just not going to give this guy another chance. This was the M. Night Shyamalan movie that broke my heart. I was a super fan. I spent the first four movies that he put out getting excited to see the next one. I remember loving The Sixth Sense. I saw it on VHS first. I love this movie. And when I heard he was going to be doing a movie about comic books, holy shit, I was in. I was on board, and I love Unbreakable. It has more visible flaws, I think, than The Sixth Sense, but it has a lot of really cool things in it, too. And I think it holds up to a rewatch. I like Signs. Again, we're seeing more and more of the flaws. I remember right after I saw The Village in theaters, I was still trying to convince myself that I liked it. It was that same experience that we talked about during our George Lucas panel, where both our friends Ryan Shaddock and Todd Maxfield Matsumoto said that they had seen The Phantom Menace in theaters like 10 times to convince themselves there was something they missed. And that was my experience with The Village. The happening fucking broke me. I had that same fanboy defensiveness throughout the entire first 20 minutes. And at one point I just said, oh, fuck it. This is awful. I don't know what I'm supposed to feel. I don't know if this is a pretentious art film 
or a Roger Corman Schlockfest. And I don't even think M. Night Shyamalan knows what it is. Mm. But he's trying to be both at the same time, and it's just a fucking mess. You broke my heart, M. Night. You <laughs> broke my heart. <laughs> Becky, what is the low point of M. Night Shyamalan? A low point for me, the lowest of the low points, is the happening. It is the happening. There is just so many things that make you groan, that make you sigh. I think you guys really captured it beautifully with everything that you've said. I mean, the scene with the old woman in her house and she goes and she bashes her head into a window. That, at that point, you've seen so many sort of unsettling deaths and you've seen such bad acting for the last hour and a half that you're like, okay, there's another lady killing herself. And you don't feel unsettled by it. You're just like, would you die already? I honestly thought she was, the actress was doing that out of frustration. She's just like, fuck it. Maybe if I scar my face, they'll let me out of this fucking movie. You're out of your contract. Finally. So just, it was so low. Uh, At some point, you're just watching it and you're in tears. You're in tears because you're laughing and because you want it to end. And you're just like, should I stay? Should I watch it? I didn't pay money for it. I got to get to the end of this because something has got to happen. At least I'll have a badge of honor saying I got through the entire thing. The participation ribbon for the happening? <laughs> yes. <laughs> e for effort. Also ran. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rosalind? Make it four out of four, Rosalind. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, Rosalind, you actually sent me a private message on uh, Skype, Skype yeah. and you said you were having a bit of a crisis because you couldn't find anything positive <laughs> about M. Night Shyamalan, and you were worried because you pride yourself on being able to be fair. I am misanthropic, but in the end, I like to think I'm relatively objective. So let's take the safety off of you now. <laughs> Where does this go off the rails? What is the low point of Shyamalan? Again, because I had to binge watch. I got a sampling of this guy's career in such a small amount of time. I've seen movies from directors that I haven't liked and have liked. and in the, Like Hitchcock, for example, because we've been making a lot of parallels with Hitchcock and M. Night. I like Hitchcock's stuff from the 40s. It's just something that I do. And I don't think it's necessarily a part of anything Alfred Hitchcock was going through personally at the time. I think it's just a change in his style. With M. Night Shyamalan, all of his movies speak to a personal state that you can tell he's going through. Hmm. Well, you can extrapolate. And there's a huge amount. There's such a tragic amount of ego involved in everything he does. It's almost like a learning by negative example. We're all kind of creative people here. We all have our own weird creative pursuits. That being said, he's a morality tale for me. He teaches me that there is a limit to your power and you need to be careful if someone gives you too much of it because it will come back and it will kick you in your rosy red ass. And that's what happens with M. Night Shyamalan. (laughs) He was given too much power, his ego got away with him, and it came crashing down like the wings have melted. So the low point of him is really how tragic and scary his career is and that it could be anyone who invests in a creative pursuit. Absolutely. Mm. And actually, for my low point, I kind of want to bounce off of what you said. And I think that there is one place where the tragedy of the hubris of M. Night Shyamalan finds ultimate fruition. Oh. Yes, you know what I'm talking about, Casey. I am talking Mm -hmm. about a TV movie that aired only once on the sci-fi channel titled The Buried Secret of M. Night Shyamalan. It aired only once on TV, but forever and ever in the pits of hell. (laughs) Also known as YouTube. (laughs) That's not true. I was looking at this the version that I viewed has no more than 2,000 hits on any one of the sections. So that means that less than 2,000 people and less than 1,000 people by the time you get to the end actually bother to watch the entire thing <laughs> to the end. It's not great. This is something I only became aware of just a few months ago. 
what it purports to be is a faux documentary about Shyamalan, an expose about, again, the buried secret of M. Night Shyamalan, theremin music. <laughs> Audio malfunctions. What are you say, talking about? <laughs> I was going to say, I hear calliope music. <laughs> <laughs> so what this really is, is it purports to be an independent behind-the-scenes look at Shyamalan and the way he makes movies while he was making The Village. And this is back in 2004. The guy doing the documentary is hired by the Sci-Fi Channel to do a puff piece and meets resistance from the mysterious director and visionary. So he goes off script and finds a terrible secret where he's not only an absolute genius filmmaker and handsome, (laughs) but he's also a guru with connections to the supernatural because years ago he drowned in a pond and was clinically dead for about 30 minutes before being brought back with the power to speak to spirits. And it's affected all of his movies still. And the documentarian is trying to get to the secret and talking to all of his old neighbors and friends growing up. And they talk about him like he's an M. Night Shyamalan character. Like you said, Becky, he's desperate to be special. And there has never been a movie that has made it more clear than this one. There's a cameo by Deepak Chopra who compares him to a shaman. (laughs) They show all the things that happen around him. He has the ability to give off these weird audio distortions that mess with the film. I'm sorry. If you give off those kind of powers, you can't be a fucking filmmaker. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you have really shitty sound quality. So that's where all the good bits of the happening went. (laughs) (laughs) They all had to be cut out in post. We essentially have this moment in the film where he goes to M. Night Shyamalan's childhood home and there are followers standing outside of it. And they all talk about, oh, we know the truth about him. We know he's into it, man. And they go to one of the guy's houses. and they They're have teenagers, to, by the way. They're teenagers. Yes. And they log into a fan site for M. Night Shyamalan that first requires you to know some eerily personal information about him. And then you go into a chat room where people have fucking Jedi powers and know what you're wearing. (laughs) It's like, I'm sorry, this guy makes scary movies. They treat him like he's the Dalai Lama crossed with Anakin fucking Skywalker. (laughs) (laughs) No, and they do a Ouija board sequence, too, which lends the whole thing that's eventual perfect like ghost hunter reality show thing. So immediately you understand this is utter malarkey. I will say, having grown up in New England, I've been to Stephen King's house. And there are weird teenagers that stand outside Stephen King's house and say, He's, he must be connected, to, and that's how his stories get to be like that. I think maybe M. Night or the sci-fi producer maybe has been to Stephen King's house and <laughs> took a little liberty with like reappropriating someone else's story in that the, way. The thing with those kind of fans is those aren't people who are in on the truth. Those are the people who fucking mail him hair. <laughs> <laughs> And that's just insane because you have all of these fawning interviews with these actors. And by the way, this is the big twist, folks. M. Night Shyamalan was behind this as part of a viral marketing campaign to make him more interesting. Apparently, it's not enough to be a 30-year-old Hollywood genius. You have to be a fucking Jedi Knight, too. For the sake of perspective, this was prior to the release of The Village. Yes, this has been the high point of his career. This was purporting to be an expose about the real M. Night Shyamalan, but here's the irony. Here's the real twist. It is an expose on what kind of person M. Night Shyamalan is. 
He's desperate to be special. They even have moments where they talk to his neighbors and teachers growing up, and, oh, he's quiet and special. And let's watch some of his childhood movies, and they fucking fawn over these things. Like we're looking at a fucking Picasso. I'm sorry, this is the childhood equivalent of artwork on the refrigerator. You know, it's cute that he made movies, and almost every great filmmaker started out with a camcorder that their dad bought them. But they're just movies made by a 10-year-old, and we can admit that, and it's okay, and it's kind of cute. Hey, look, there's something he learned from watching Raiders of the Lost Ark or Close Encounters, and that's really neat. But we shouldn't pretend like a couple stick figures in front of a house and a little sun that's just a circle with lines coming off of it is modern art. It's like he can't even have that, where you go, oh, it's kind of cute that he did that. Everything has to be mysterious. Everything has to be a secret, including a confrontation with him. when he's like, Knight, these aren't just movies. They're autobiography. (laughs) This is the low point, I think, of M. Night Shyamalan, because of any film, not just from this filmmaker, but any film made by anybody ever. This is the most nakedly narcissistic thing I have ever seen that wasn't made by either a leader of North Korea (laughs) or Kanye West. (laughs) This thing is insane. IFC had an article about it that actually laid this all out and called it cartoonishly egocentric and said that he had made a fanboy celebration of himself. It's like, quote, This is Spinal Tap if Spinal Tap was about how awesome Christopher Guest looked (laughs) while he played guitar. (laughs) So the buried history of M. Night Shyamalan and the giant slobbery kiss that he's giving his muscles in front of a fucking mirror is the low point of M. Night Shyamalan for me. So pulling ourselves out of the muck, pulling ourselves out of the water. Yes, out of the water and choking down a hot dog. Yes. We're going to get into the good stuff here because, again, we wouldn't be talking about this guy if he just made nothing but shit. There's something right about M. Night Shyamalan, and we've gotten hints of it throughout this panel. So I really want to dig into that with you guys. I'm going to start with you, Becky. What is the high point of M. Night Shyamalan? You know, I really appreciated the soundtrack to Signs. I really liked the very pretty animal CG that was done in After Earth. But I've got to say that Sixth Sense was utterly mind-blowing to a 17-year-old or however old I was. i got to say, though, that my high point is watching The Happening <laughs> with my spouse with the riff tracks. Oh. It is my most fun go-to comedy breeze-through because everything can be riffed on. Every single moment, every single scene, every single utterance can be torn apart, can be laughed at, every single one of them. And that's quite enjoyable for me. And thank you, M. Knight, for providing that little <laughs> sparkle to my terrible Wednesday evening at 930 when I don't want to do any more grading. <laughs> Not bad. Not bad. So, Casey, what is the high point for Shyamalan? This was actually hard because we do focus, I did, and we do focus a lot more on how he's deficient. It's got to be unbreakable for me. And not just because it was his first sort of like not sixth sense effort. And so when he was trying to do something different, I think for the reasons that we talked about before, like sometimes slow burn in movies can be really excruciating, especially when they're done poorly. But he uses even in Unbreakable, especially he uses this sense of sort of slow pacing and this unease to deliberately build Bruce Willis's character to the realization that he might be a superhero. In reality, if you're not doing an actual superhero movie, it's a pretty hard sell for a real, quote, realistic, unquote, movie to sell something as fantastical as this guy is nigh invulnerable. Also, looking back on it after having watched it again a couple days ago, just the slug line, how many days in your life have you been sick, is a ridiculously clever elevator pitch. If you were to trap an executive in an elevator saying, I've wrote this screenplay and I want to sell it to you, 
that line unpacks to hours and hours and hours of interesting little tendrils that a plot can actually go. And that is a fascinating way to have a character come to the big realization throughout the movie. And watching it again, I'm like, oh yeah, that's I didn't remember that line. That's pretty fucking cool. Like, they did a great thing. It's unfortunate that the twist stuff begins to wear thin here, even though I think it works really well to sort of bookend what you do with this movie, how you end a movie that's basically just about an origin story. I think it's just the thing that's compelling about it is that they make a film about someone's self-doubt about their own nature to be so intriguing. You want to believe by the end of the narrative that he is who he is, and you're pulling for him even if he's not pulling for himself. You're like his son. He was saying, you know, oh, you could be a superhero. Here are the things that make him, like th- th- these sorts of things. And also, you know, Samuel L. Jackson is playing Samuel L. Jackson, but he's basically the narrator of the movie, right? He is the voice, the omnipotent voice in the comic book who's explaining everything to you about the nature of the character and what's going on. And I love how his tragic conclusion is sort of the culmination of his life's purpose as well as his own downfall as a villain. Like, it wraps it up very beautifully. For a guy who, like me, who really is quite tired of superhero movies, this is the ultimate superhero deconstruction movie, and it's perfect for that for me, and that's my high point. So, Rosalind, you were afraid that you couldn't find one of these moments, and (laughs) I'm actually, with a mix of dread (laughs) and intrigue, I really got to know what you're going to say next. What is the high point of M. Night Shyamalan? And here's the question, is there one? The point is that people suck, Mike. Yay! Achievement unlocked. But, okay, so my low point was that he is kind of a tragic negative example of ego getting away with someone. But my high point is that that same tragic outcome is the result of what is actually a really awesome imagination. And some of his, like, you could nitpick the plot holes in his scripts or the weird robotic-sounding dialogue that he occasionally has. But at the end of the day, putting myself into the mindset of that type of filmmaker that has these sort of grandiose, very fantasy sort of-esque storylines in their head, it sounds like someone that I would sit, have a beer with, and we would just hash out writing ideas. So even though that a lot of what he does might be an example of what not to do, you can still garner inspiration from all of his films. Even The Happening. The Happening, okay, we all hate The Happening. This is essentially a PTSD recovery group for people who saw The Happening. (laughs) But (laughs) I think even that film, there are things you can extrapolate from it and go, well, that's kind of an interesting thought. Something that makes people kill themselves. Maybe not trees flapping in the wind, but there's somewhere I can go with that and use it as an exercise as a creative thinker to generate a story. So I look at a lot of his stuff and go, how could this be done differently? And I find it kind of a learning experience, which is a high point, even the worst of his movies. I always thought, wow, there's always something to think about. I think for me, the high point is the deliberate pace to his films, that this is something that you don't see a lot in movies anymore. And I know, Casey, this is something that we've talked about ourselves a lot, especially when we complain about movies like Star Trek Into Darkness and The Dark Knight Rises. These were movies that were so afraid to slow down because they knew that if you gave the audience a moment to breathe and think about what they were watching, then the plot holes would just explode all over it and the movie would just fall apart. The thing with Shyamalan is that he has the confidence to let the movie breathe. He's not afraid to let you think about the movie while it's happening. He's not afraid to embrace these quiet, normal moments that are punctuated occasionally with moments of the supernatural. He's not afraid to let you hold off on getting the answer to a mystery. He trusts the audience, and he also trusts his own filmmaking 
to say not only are you willing to wait for that answer, but I can give you something that's compelling while you're waiting for that answer. And that kind of confident filmmaking is something you don't see a lot of anymore. And you certainly don't see it in a movie that you would call a blockbuster. Again, we look at sort of seeing his movies as the antithesis of the Roland Emmerich Michael Bay films, which are all about just over-the-top disasters that are always about these assaults on the senses. But what I like about Shyamalan at his best is he's able to do a quiet contemplative movie about these idiosyncratic characters that are often unusual and quiet, reflective people rather than wisecracking, funny, sarcastic people, that people who end up being special, and maybe this is just him projecting himself on the film, but he doesn't make movies about the class clown. He makes movies about the quiet person, sort of like Ali Sheedy in The Breakfast Club. (laughs) That is his main character. The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable, and to a lesser extent, Signs, I think they still hold up. His best stuff is oddly timeless. And on that note, I want to thank all of our panelists for joining us again. Becky Friedman from Ask an Atheist. Thank you for having me, Mike. And our gleeful misanthrope, Rosalind Townsend. Thank you for having me, Mike. (laughs) And as always, Mr. Casey Doran. The horror. The horror. And with that, we're going to thank you folks for joining us. We will see you again next month. Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com and send us your feedback at info at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. whispering planning on stealing something no ma'am we're not plan on murdering me in my sleep what no